good hello to you. I'm Dave Burse. I'm the host of this podcast and founder of inspiration company Additive. So welcome, welcome, welcome to another Assorted Nuts special edition podcast. This one is with former Saatchi and Saatchi creative director and legendary commercials director Jeff Stark. Jeff's portrait is the hero image for the Assorted Nuts project. It was taken in the offices of Stark Films with Jeff showing the creative tension between serious business and entertainment. And even with my uh, cholerophobia, that's a fear of clowns to you, I still think it's a brilliant image. Um, It should be on your screen right now. If you tap on the link, you'll be able to see a bigger version. But nothing beats the massive print you'll be able to see at the DNA 50th anniversary event. So, about this interview. I went to see Jeff at his beautiful Riverside house in West London. It was a glorious sunny day and I arrived half an hour late thanks to London traffic, but Jeff still greeted me with a glass of wine, a smile and lots of great stories. And here they are, just for you. It's a lovely sunny day and I'm sitting down just beside the banks of the Thames um, with Jeff Stark. Hi, Jeff. Hello. Now, I was wondering if you'd be able to tell us just a, a bit of a quick history of your career, how you get into advertising, and I suppose why you get into advertising in the first place, uh, through to you jumping out of the, the other end of it. Okay. Um, I got into it, um, got my wife up the spout. Well, she wasn't my wife. I got my girlfriend up the spout. And I thought I'd better get a proper job because I'd just been doing sort of flogging cars and just anything, door to door, you know, cleaning windows, you know, just any, just, it was the 60s, you know. <laughs> so, so I, got, I applied, answered an ad in the Telegraph. This is, you could get into advertising mastering and ad in the Telegraph uh, for assistant to the advertising manager at Curry's. And I got in, I got that, well, I got that, got there, and there were all these incredibly posh guys in really nice suits. And there was I in this really crap suit. And it was an executive job, and I thought, I'm not executive. They know, they'll see straight through me that I'm not an executive. But with that sort of youthful mixture of of huge self-confidence mixed with low self-worth, <laughs> you think, well, I, they'll, they'll never hire me if, if they thought, if they could see who I really was, but I can convince them I'm somebody else. So, who will I be? Who's an executive? Who's? This is 1964, right? So, the James Bond films had just started coming out with Sean Connery. I thought, he's that's executive. He's an executive. I'll do the interview with Sean Connery. <laughs> so, I did the interview. So, suddenly, no, I, probably, I, could, I can handle that for you, certainly. And I did the whole interview with Sean Connery, and I got the job. So, I had to go and do the bloody job. As Sean Connery, <laughs> with the Sean Connery voice. <laughs> uh, so I got into courage, and then I quickly realised that I'd got in the right business because I thought advertising, I could do that. Thinking up ideas, I could do that. And I quickly realised that I'd, I was the good, it was the right. I'd gone into the right industry, but I'd gone in the wrong door. I mean, I was not cut out to be an executive, anything. But I could, so I ended up sort of writing the house magazine, writing the brochures, and doing. That was the, this was the days of pirate radio, Radio Caroline, Radio Luxembourg. And they had a, uh, a Radio London, all these off ships, you know, that were offshore that were trying to sink each other and all that. So it was brilliant. <laughs> it was great. It was pirate. I mean, it was very piratical. It was. <laughs> they tried to sink each other and stuff. <laughs> and uh, and I, we had a 15-minute sponsored show on these pro on these ships, 
and they didn't go through the agency. So I ended up just producing and writing and appearing in and you know, voicing the ads and all this on this sponsor for 15 quid a week, <laughs> which is what I got paid. And, uh, and that's how I got in. And then I realised I got in the wrong door, so I went into, I got into a, a little agency called uh, ATA, which originally stood for Agricultural and Technical Advertising. But they realised that was a bit of a... a, a, a hampering them, holding them back a bit. This name, so they changed it, Advertising and Television Associates, but it was still 80. But it was Agricultural and Technical Advertising. And then I got out of there and started doing, went to a place that did all mail order, the bulwark, you know, build mighty muscles in 49 seconds, really, seconds a day. And that was all direct response. Everything was selling stuff off the page. It was a specialist agency selling stuff off the page, which was actually like national service for copywriters because there was no um, argument about is this ad or is a good ad. There was no theorising about it. The ad went in the paper on the Sunday and on Tuesday they told you whether it was a good ad or not. You know, did it get, did it sell or didn't it sell? You know, so it was terrific training for being a copywriter actually, and everybody should have to do it because kids come out of art school and they've had such a rarefied view of you know. What are you going to do? You've got to you've got to sell a second-hand car in a three lines in the evening standard. What are you going to do? How are you going to write? You know, no, they never encouraged, never invited to think about that. You know, it's all rather rarefied and grand, and you know. So I feel like I kind of came up the from the market trader end of it. Yeah. You know, from the store barrow boy, yeah. having and I was also was a barrow boy. Yeah. <laughs> I, had a, <laughs> I had a stall in Petticoat Lane, and. Uh, <laughs> So I came up from the barrow boy end of the market. Yeah. yeah. I just uh, I bumped into an old art director of mine, a guy called Ian Thomas, on the way here, and he was saying that he met you a few years ago, and you said to him, when he was sort of quite early on in his career, that he should be doing one year at least in a direct marketing agency before he even considered furthering himself in advertising. That's pretty much just what I've told you. Yeah. 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 And did he think this was good advice or not? It worked for him. He's uh, now executive creative director of JWT. <laughs> He's done all right. I'm glad, I'm glad it's worked for him. <laughs> so, so after that, how did you start getting into the agency, uh, the world? Well, um, I mean, I was in the agency, but then what happened was I was with this direct marketing agency and um, a guy who had been creative director of Spottiswoods. There was an agency called Spottiswoods, which was a big, you know, fast-moving consumer goods agency. They did bachelor soups and all sorts of things. And he had been thrown out of Spotswoods because it had been taken over by another agency, Davidson Pierce. And they put their creative director in. So he was out. And he, he came and he, for some stupid reason, he invested money in this agency and he arrived in this agency. So it was a rather embarrassing situation because I was now a creative director of this direct marketing agency. And this guy from this vastly bigger, with far more experience than me, arrived and... Um, and I was theoretically his boss, but he had shares in the company. I didn't have any shares in the company, you know. So it was a difficult situation, but fortunately we got on really well. And I said, you know, I can, I'd love to learn. You could, he taught me an awful lot about consumer advertising, and I taught him a bit about direct marketing writing. Then he left and started another little, a tiny little advertising agency uh, that was doing a lot of new product development. 
and he took me with him and he said, he said, I can't give you a job, but if you want to go freelance, I'll guarantee you a base load of income and I'll introduce you to some other clients who will give you work. So that's when I started doing this freelance and for about six, seven years, I freelanced away writing. I mean, I wrote a 48-page book about plastic guttering, for God's sake. You know, I, <laughs> I, you know anything. I wrote double-page spreads of dirty jokes for Knave magazine, top-shelf yeah. magazine, and uh, anything, you know, and uh, a lot of trading techniques, ski, holiday brochures, anything, you know, and I would sit there with a little time and then deliver them. And sometimes, sometimes I would, oh, I've got to get this ad to the agency and uh, at two o'clock, I jump on the tube, write it on the tube on the way in, deliver it with the invoice, you know. <laughs> and uh, um, I was having a pretty good life, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, uh, but I was, but at this, at this time, I could see that there was this whole. Uh, I would, you would read campaign, and it was, there was, it was about another world. I didn't even know about this, you know. But I thought, I could do what these guys are doing. I just don't know how to get from here to there. And so, um, finally I went to see uh, a headhunter, and they sent me along to see Jeremy Sinclair at Saatchi's. And I got in to Saatchi's on the basis of some... No, I've missed out a stage in the story. I thought, how am I going to get from here to there? And because of my experience, what had happened was commercial radio legitimate commercial radio, not pirate commercial radio, had just arrived, right? What are we talking about now? 1970-something, right? Um, had just arrived, and um, I thought, oh, so I, I'm, nobody knows how to do this. I've done it. I can write. And produce, I know where the studios I know how to do that. I can, I can do them. I can voice. I can do the whole thing. I can be a writer, a radio, freelance radio writer producer, and I'll get into the big agencies, the proper agencies, by being that. So I got together with a guy who was an ex-rock and roll band and he had a little studio in his basement and we said, we'll put together a tape of commercials, fake, you know, we'll just make up stuff, make up ads and I'll write them and you do the music and we'll do, and I'll voice them and, you know, we'll do, and we'll do it that way. And we made this tape of commercials to try and get work. As, as, a, as a, you know, for his studio, we'll write and make your commercials for you, your radio commercials. Well, it didn't work in the sense that nobody was spending any money on, proper money on writing and on radio commercials. But Jeremy Sinclair heard it and said, who, who, who wrote this stuff? Who is this? So I said, I'm, I'm writing it. Well, so he gave me a job. On the basis of that, on the basis of that tape, he gave me a job as a copywriter at Saatchi's, and that was, I was 33, so that was 1976, 1976 I went into Saatchi's, yeah, 33, yeah, 43, yeah, 76, Uh, and that was, that was, and they were just, they were still in Lower Regent Street, before they, the Garland Compton merger, so it was, um, it was a good time to be at Saatchi and Saatchi. And as I said, I just churned out stuff really fast. I didn't know that you got a week to write an ad. I just carried on writing an ad every hour, just like I'd been doing. And they, and Morris, uh, Charlie and Jeremy went ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. <laughs> so I, maybe not the greatest ads, but <laughs> it doesn't have to churn them out. And by the law of averages, one in 10 had to be pretty good, you know. <laughs> So I, uh, 
was churning out the ads, and I quickly realised there was a Saatchi way of writing an ad. You just say, oh yeah, I got this. It's a joke, a death, and a logo. That was my, <laughs> my, you know, at Thompson's, the mad three magic words were mother, love, and baby, and at Saatchi's, the three magic words were sex, death, and money. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I quickly sussed that and sussed how to do a Saatchi ad and it was, there was, it was quite, you know, think of, if shock, it was all about shock, you know, the shock value, it was mostly press, it was all press. It was mostly about shock value, you know, you get a picture of Hitler on the ad, any reason, you know, you know, you get your picture, right for a Estate, Jones Lang and Wooten Estate, big picture of Hitler. We're changing the London skyline even faster than he did. You know, whatever, picture of Hitler. Find a reason to use a picture. Just find a shock image and then yeah. make it, you know, a shock picture, make it relevant, you know. So you, you're kind of saying that you, you found a, a formula for yeah. the Saatchi's ad and you just managed to follow that formula yeah, and keep them happy. the formula, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so then you ended up top of the tree with Paul Arden. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. What happened? I was sort of second top of the tree because I was uh, the the top, top writer was Andrew Rutherford, but he left and formed White Collins Rutherford Scott WCRS, and uh, and then Paul arrived and Jeremy thought it would be an interesting sort of thing to put you know the Irish Theat and the Barra Boy together. So they did, and we got on really well, and we did. Our best work because I was kind of grounded in selling, and you know, and Paul was very artistic. Um, I wouldn't say he was the greatest ideas person, uh, but he made your ideas look like a million dollars, <laughs> which is what you want from an art director if you're a copywriter. So. Uh, yeah, that's so. We had a great we had a great few years together, Paul and I. And then I uh, left and uh, started in what 1982, I think. Right, been seven years, I think. Started Hedger Mitchell Stark, which had been Jerry Hedger Seymour before. Jeff, there'd been a staff revolt, and Jeff Seymour had been either he goes or we go, and so he, they they got rid of him. He ended up at Sarches, and I. So he went to Sarches, and I went there. You know, yeah. um, and uh, we went for a couple of years, and we're doing pretty well. We were sort of uh, on every pitch list and winning lots, winning awards, and I was on every DNA jury and campaign. All those, you know, I was sort of like a player suddenly having come from nothing, you know, quite quickly become a player in the industry, you know. And um, and then uh, two years uh, two years in, Jer uh, Charlie Sanchi phoned me up. At, at, and somebody else had said, so it was a little agency, the whole place was about the size, you know, twice the size of the show. So, Jeff, Charles Sanchi on the phone. And the agency all went quiet. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, yes, Charles. <laughs> he said, Jeff, I want you to come back here and be creative director jointly with Paul. And uh, I said, no, I can't really do that because I've, I've, you know, I've got 40 people here 
Um, well, you know, we're doing okay, and I can't just walk away. Yeah, I'm, you know, I can't. I'm a shareholder, you know, I own a third of the agency. Uh, so uh, he said, "Well, we'll buy it. We'll buy the agency, and we'll give them all jobs. We'll guarantee them all a job." So I sold the agency to Charles for. Uh, 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 and and got a million pounds twenty years ago, which was quite a lot of money, you know. Yeah, yeah, my goodness. So, well, I mean, you got three million, but I was only a third yeah. 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 So, so then you're 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 back with Satchis. Back with Satchis. But, and I signed up. Uh, and I said that you have to. You can't when you sell an agency. You can't just sell it and walk away, which I would have done if I could. Um. Because I'd always said, I'm going to get out at 45. I'm going to leave this business by the time I'm 45. And the reason was because when I joined the business in the 60s, there were all these guys in their 40s who were kind of bow ties and carnations in the buttonhole. And, oh, and you just, they were just relics from another era. And I just thought, I'm not going to become one of those guys. I'm going to leave by the time I'm 45, and then I won't become one of that one of those old relics that hangs around for years. And so I, uh, I said, I said this was part of the plan. I'm right. I now can leave at 45. I mean, I told Dick Hedger when I, I want to get out of this business when I'm 45, and that was I was only 40 then. You know, so it was so uh, that was I was 38, I think, when I when I signed up with Dick Hedger. So. so We've got to make a lot of money quick. Um, and I'd always wanted to sail around the world, which is a long-term ambition, to sail, sail my own boat around the world. Uh, and so... Uh, where was I? Yes. So, so I told Charlie, I will go at the end of four years, you know. And he said, no, you won't. You're, you're, you're in love with this, but you'll never leave it. You, 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 can't, you can't leave. You love it. <laughs> And uh, I said, no, I will, I will go. And and I did go at the end of four years. But of course, and I set off to sail around the world. And I got halfway around the world and got really bored with sailing around the world. <laughs> <laughs> Realised I had more fun making the money than I was having spending it. So I came back and started directing. Yeah. And I've been doing that for 20 years. <laughs> Goodness. So, so what was it that had attracted you? towards directing had you dabbled well, in it you know what attracted me to directing was that I'd, I'd given work to directors and when you I always find, if you write a script you can play it on the projector in your head and I tell this to creatives when they say you, when you write a script you can play it on the projector in your head and you can see the whole film perfectly and uh, and when the director reads the script he plays it on the projector in his head and he sees it but the film he's seeing is different from the film you're seeing. And you can have all sorts of conversations about it, but you're still seeing the, pic the, the picture you're playing and it's never exactly the same. And I always thought if I could get rid of this damn director, I could get the film that I want. The problem, the other pro problem is that I tell, tell all creators is well, you can play it on the projector in your head, but the projector in your head, if you're a copywriter, has no clock attached. <laughs> and the first thing you think when you get a, see a cut of the commercial is it's all very quick. God, I didn't realize it was going to be over that quick. 
I'd imagine that shling, every shot you'd imagined lingering over a bit longer, right? But as a director, you have to think that's a quarter of a second, that shot, that little look round, that half, that sort of And that's how you have to learn to, that's what you have to learn to do as a director, to think how it's going to work in the time length. Yeah, it, it's funny when I when I used to do television work. Time length, you know? Yeah, yeah. I remember when I, I used to do television and radio ads, and, and then when I became a creative director, I used to tell my department, because of very similar things, I want you to write it for 10 seconds shorter than the time you've got. The, the John Webster 20 for 30. <laughs> and also to do it for, write something you can do for half the budget, and yeah. then spend the other half polishing it. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, that's good advice too. Yeah, but the, the, the John Webster rule was always write it for 10 seconds shorter. So it could work 10 seconds less, so you've got yeah. space to... And most commercials that you see that don't work are don't work because yeah. they're overwritten for the time length. Mm. So, so, as somebody who's gone from being the big boss of the agency and being responsible for making sure that ideas are absolutely bang on, to now you're ab about making sure that the execution yeah. is absolutely bang on. How, how does that uh, how does that fit with you when you? get given a really shit script and as a creative director your creative director part is going this just isn't good enough I'd never no, let this through I yes I would <laughs> um, well you just say uh, you just turn you don't even you turn it down you turn, if there's nothing you can do with it if there's the bones of an idea that might be maybe if they'll let you you could hone it and then, I, I mean Almost no script that I direct ever ends up quite exactly as it was written. You know, there's usually... Um, tweaks that I make to the script, really. That, that, uh, but what I always do is deliver what's on the paper. I always deliver what's written on the paper. You know, they always get the script as per script. But I try and make it give them another option, which is just like them. And an awful, as I said, an awful lot of directors, most directors, I mean, if you're Paul Shearer or if you're Frank Budgeon or if you're Chris, uh, um, you know, gorgeous, or whatever, Chris Palmer, you, you, you just churn, turn away every script that is not something you could have written yourself, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of us spend our time Polishing turds, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as a as a director, yeah. have you ever had the the aspirations to do something beyond the ad break? Uh, yes, I've tried. I, I went to the brink with the movie, yeah. and then it didn't happen. And you know, I watch those guys like Frank and, and Chris Palmer at Gorgeous, and they've got these film development people, and they've been working on movies for years, years and years. They work away, and they never get made. And I think, what well, a waste of time. I mean, you can spend years working on movies that never happen. Mm. And I just thought, life's too short, I can't be bothered. If, so if I, I will go to my grave not having made a movie and it won't worry me, but yeah. I might, I'm now dabbling with the idea of television and uh, making comedies, whether it goes online or on TV, but uh, things outside of advertising, but, but, but sketch comedy or radio comedy rather than uh, than, than movie yeah. if somebody comes along with a nice movie I mean I, I look at things like um, uh, 
Bridget Jones, and I think I could direct that. And I could direct it as well as Richard Curtis or as well as whoever directed the last the girl, I can't remember. I could, yeah, I could do that. Uh, but I'm not going to kill myself if I didn't, didn't do it. That's probably, if I was going to do maybe that rock kind of, that kind of rom-com genre is probably where I would feel most comfortable. But you've also you got uh, quite a bit of attention a few years ago from the short that you did. Yes, with Ewan McGregor, yes, that's right. And I did another short with him, actually. I've done two shorts with Ewan McGregor. Uh, but the desserts one, it's all over the internet. Suddenly it's, uh, suddenly it's, it's got onto YouTube and it's... I don't know how that but it's... I mean, I don't own it anymore, but... Do you think these days, l- looking at the the way the world is now, and we've had this great big explosion of media channels, and, mm-hmm. and media channels aren't necessarily have to be paid for anymore, they can be free if they're on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that makes the job of a creative director different from when you were sitting in the CD chair? Absolutely. What makes the, cre- the job of the creative director, many things make the job of the creative director different. One of them is that I think you can't be a temperamental genius anymore. The industry has no time for people like, you know, Tony K. Paul Arden. You can't get away with that any longer, you know. That whole I'm a temperamental genius stuff. You have to be down to earth, practical, realistic. I think that's one of the changes that's happened. And the other thing I think is the clients are less in awe and less reverential towards what we do because the technology is so available to them we can all go out we can all pick up a camera and go and make a commercial and edit it and we can all send me the rushes I'll edit it on my computer in my office you know there's no magic about what we do anymore Mm. there's been a demystification which consequently devalues our contribution I think so there isn't the respect and reverence for what we do anymore Um, that's that's Plus, the above-the-line advertising is no longer the nuclear weapon that it was. Television advertising in the 70s and 80s was the nuclear weapon. You know, you went on TV, you ads get got seen. Now, because of zapping and because of the plurality of... Plurality is what is, is, is changing everything. The plurality of media, the, plur- the internet, the plurality of television shows is changing everything not probably for the better as far as the client is concerned but we are no longer the creative person in the advertising agency the hot shot writer is no longer the king pin that he once was do you think there's, from what you're saying there, there's been a, a loss of respect for loss creativity? Respect, not for creativity, but for advertising agencies. Mm. For people in advertising agencies, there is no longer, a, we're no longer perceived to have a monopoly. We never did have a monopoly. We, we were perceived to have a monopoly. We're no longer perceived to have a monopoly. Or, I mean, we, I mean, we, the advertising profession, we and the agency and production business uh, are no longer perceived to be to have a monopoly of creativity you know most clients don't wear suits anymore and regard themselves as creative people you know Mm. 
So do you see there, there's been a, a difference from when you were doing advertising in the, the late 60s, early 70s, at that, at that heady point when we were starting to get the, re- the creative revolution really hitting in the UK? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the clients themselves, the way they were then to the way they are now has changed. When it was back then, you were dealing more with the, 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 the boss of the brand. Rather yeah. than a marketing junior. Yes, the, I think the levels of of, uh, of uh, the other thing is is research has become very much more dominant than it was. Most things didn't get researched, and the things that did get researched were the research was pretty superficial and not very good. Now you're getting things that are made up that ads that. Are they're spending thirty grand making the kind of animatic that really is a moving image uh, um, to go out and research it? So it does look quite like what the final thing is going to look like. So they can get some real feedback and the soundtrack and those old sounds. You look at some of the stimulus material that they're putting into research now. It is much much better than it ever used to be in our day. And so they're getting much, because the the stimulus material is closer to the real thing, the feedback is more accurate. And uh, so uh, 75, eight, 75% of things that get written never happen more. 90, 95% of things of ads that get written never happen. And it used to be in our day that when Paul and I did something, it was Jeff and this is Jeff and Paul have done this, therefore it will get made. They're because we did it and we are you know, hotshot guys, and therefore the client passed down and says, yes, okay, and they go to make it. Um, and uh, that doesn't happen anymore. doesn't matter who you are. gets researched. Research straight out. You know. What's your general opinion of research and how it's done? I, think it's, I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's wrong. I don't, I don't think it's... Uh, it's getting better and better, and more and more accurate or predict to the point where I can't understand some of the crap that's on because <laughs> the research seems to be so good how did that crap that I know I, you see an ad sometimes and you think I know that's going to run for a six week period and I'm never going to see it again and I'm never going to see anything I'm not going to see a follow up ad to it ever again because it's not going to work and, and you think how did it get made how did it get made given all this fantastic research they're doing these the answer to that question, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, looking at the kind of adverts that you see on telly or, on, or in the newspaper here or, or wherever, and you're now as much a spectator, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as, a, as a creator. Um, what do you think of this stuff? Is it any good or has the quality gone down? I think it's... Uh, um, there's, uh, there's widely believed to have been a golden age and actually, if you look back, the ads are as, as, as good now as ever. Uh, probably better. Um, and things that would have been silver at DNAD 20 years, 30 years ago, wouldn't even make the cut these days. So uh, the, the, the golden age theory is, is a bit uh, crap, actually. Um, there was a golden age of of um, astonishing ads that didn't work. <laughs> 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 it, 
Any examples? <laughs> Were you responsible for them? <laughs> Many of which I was responsible for. <laughs> but you know, sometimes you just you do it because you do what's good for you, not what's good for the client. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you do it to win an award. Yeah. You do it to minutes. Do you think is it going to work? Probably not. But hey, it's new, it's fresh, it's different. It's gonna, yeah. I wouldn't like to elaborate. <laughs> uh, you, you, you told me a few months ago about um, that when you were at Saatchi's with Paul, there used to be a pot of money that Paul would just go and he, he would just commission a photographer and come in with shots and hear some shots and hand them to you, turn them into an idea. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Well, it's happened with... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he, was, he spent money like water, Paul. <laughs> He was, he, uh, 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 you know, the agency's money. Uh, and he'd done, we got the Alexon account, Alexon Fashion. And um, he went out and he got, uh, I think it was David Bailey or somebody, uh, I can't remember, some quite well-known photographer, Robbie Montgomery, Robbie Montgomery. Um, to take some pictures of these terribly... Uh, aristocratic English-looking girls in this English-looking landscape wearing these terribly sort of quite English-looking classy clothes that they sort of see people wearing in the tatler and things. And, because uh, uh, Paul was <laughs> incredibly snobbish. And uh, he came in, he said, look, I said, I've had these photographs done and I think that I really want to use them, but I haven't really got any idea. I'm... Um, just sort of experimenting with trying to get the clothes to look like something. And so um, I said, well, I don't know, who, who, who took the pictures? He said, well, there's Robbie Montgomery. He's quite good. He's quite well known. So I said, well, why don't you do Robbie Montgomery's women in Alexon? And then, and then the next one you get David Bailey, you do Bailey's women in Alexon. And then you do, I don't know, Duffy's women. You just do them. And he said, that's it, that's what we'll do, that's it. And that was the campaign. But it started off, we got a load of photographs. And if you remember, he did, he did, uh, um, he did a very famous one with uh, Avedon, Richard Avedon. Have you seen that one with a girl, a black girl with a mm. skirt wrapped around her head and yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, so that was, the, yeah, but that was the way he wrote. He, and he would just get stuff reset in five different typefaces to, no, no, try and century, try and century. And he would send uh, Roger Kennedy the time. Would just he'd reset things and try things and get things reshot and you know he 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 didn't give a different and and because he but he got away with it. He got away with it because it was Paul Arden and uh, and he was a temperamental genius. But he acted up. He played up to the the temperamental genius role and calculated whether he was going to get away with it or not. <laughs> so you, you got out of the advertising game before the internet really uh, was invented. Yeah. 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 And how do you see it as somebody sort of out with the agency world now? How, how do you see the effect that that has had on the industry and on the work and things? Have you, have you kept an eye on it at all? Um, Yes, there's a lot of clients. I don't really understand why this. How this? There's a lot of clients out there who believe they can get their ads seen without spending any money by putting them on the internet. They are deluding themselves. There's about five ads a year that get seen 
with a, you know, there's the John West salmon thing with a bear and everybody tunes in with, but 99% of them don't get seen as far as I can, as far as I can make out. And most advertising on the internet, I find incredibly intrusive, like a foot in the door salesman. You know, you, I go on the internet to find some information, something pops up, I get the fuck out of my, mm. out of my way, out of my face, I want to get to, and so I find their intrusiveness has a negative effect on me. I hate the client, I hate the advertiser for getting in the way of what I want to see. Mm. Where I never did on television feel that, you know? But because I go onto the internet for something very specific, it's what they call, yeah, lean forward television, as they call it, Um, press the red button and all that, Um, which is kind of the same. I resent the I resent an awful lot of the advertising on the internet that that, that I find gets in the way of, of what I'm trying to find on the internet, um, and I very very rarely watch uh, ads on the internet. Mm-hmm. What was the last one I watched? Was Old Spice, which is really good and funny and clever and deserved to be watched and all that. But most of them, don't. clients think they can get you know their ad with you know that that checks that ticks off their eight sales things that they want and still get get it seen on the, on, t- on the internet. They won't, you know. Mm-hmm. So you get. I was asked to do something for, for Gillette on the internet, and I just thought. Why nobody's going to watch this if I make it? Nobody's going to watch it. Why are you going to do? Why do you want to make? It? Okay, so you've got no money and you're going to make it for seven grand or something, yeah. and somebody's going to make it. It won't be me, but somebody's going to make it. But it's a waste of seven grand because nobody will watch it, apart from the client, and his friends, you know, his family, <laughs> <laughs> and the crew who made it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. But I just feel I feel there's an awful lot of money. A lot of clients are deluding themselves. The other thing is this: this uh, now we have a dialogue with the consumer. We have an inter- We have a relationship. We don't just advertise. We have a relationship with the consumer. I uh, bought a computer from Tesco for my daughter about a couple of years ago, and they asked me for my. And I got stupidly gave them my email. I now get daily emails from Tesco. If you were to Ask their advertising people, they would probably count me as one of the people with whom they have a relationship. They do. I fucking hate them. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there, is there, again, from the observer point of view, looking at the industry, do, do, can you see some issues that need to be addressed within, this, within the industry just now? Is there stuff that you see is, is a bit of a problem? Um... What are the problems the industry faces are, are, are pretty much the I, I think the the traditional uh, full service advertising agency is on the way out. Uh, I think clients will buy more in a more ad hoc way. In the same way that agencies buy, you know, you, you you go and buy this campaign or this ad from this production company and this director, and you go and buy that. 
And that's accepted within the production company world, that we don't, you don't have an account. You just have that. It's a jobbing business. And I think it will become more and more a jobbing business. Mm. And the, the role of account handling will be done within the client organisation. That's the way I see it going. Mm. That's, that's very interesting. I've not, I've not had that response before. So that, that's... That, I, th I think you've... And it's, again, part, a part of the... It follows on from what I was saying about the respect, the reverence for what it is that we do has gone. Because, in a way, quite rightly, there was nothing that worthy of that. Uh, yeah, the client could do it himself. You know, um, and I think they were paying... Uh, there was a period in the 80s, I think, what happened was... There was a period in the 80s when... Uh, in the 90s, uh, when I started directing, you know, in the, in the 90s, when um, the client would roll up at the film shoot in his Ford Granada, the creative director would roll up in his Porsche, the copywriter would roll up in his BMW, the director would roll up in his Maserati, and the client who was paying for all this with his Ford Granada would look around and say, why? <laughs> and he was quite right. Mm -hmm. He was quite right to say why. So yeah. would you say that that period um, that you were lucky enough to be at the top of the game okay. when it was a blip of success? Yes, yes, I would say that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there's so many agencies who say that they want to get back to that, they want to get back to the way things were, no. but it was a blip. It was a blip. They never will. No, it wasn't a blip. It lasted. I mean, it was a 30, 30 year blip. Yeah. It was more, a, bit, a bit of a long <laughs> blip. But I think it's gone. I yeah. think it's gone. I don't think people are uh, prepared to pay big dosh for what it is that we do, what we bring to the party anymore. I think they don't value it as highly as they did. One of the things that I'm involved in is is teaching people and also teaching teaching students and, and kids who are interested in in advertising. Um, would you have any advice for the people who are starting out, thinking about a career in the industry, or, or starting out in the industry? I would. My advice for anybody who's thinking about a career in advertising is don't. And I'll tell you why. Because everybody, everybody I know, all the middle class 50 year old, 40, 50 year old parents, all come to me. My child is very good at art, he's trying to get into advertising and he's very good at drawing and he's good at whatever. And that nobody is trying to. My wife went to be, uh, to, took somebody to the, the guy's hospital dentistry course to, to, to enroll for that because she was a foreigner and coming here. There were no English people middle-class English kids enrolling to be dentists. They were all doing media studies. And it's a tiny part. It's about the media industry is about less than 10% of the whole economy. And it's what 90% of bright young people are trying to get into. So I would try and get into the other 90% that... Only ten percent of we're trying to get. So yeah, my advice is: if you're a really creative person, go and be a creative engineer. Because there's not many of them. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'll go and be a uh, yeah a, yeah a, a creative engineer. That's where you know if I was going to do it now, that's what I'd do. I wouldn't I wouldn't bother with advertising. It's oversubscribed. There's too many people. There's for every person there are a hundred people knocking on the door trying to get in or qualified to get in for everyone who actually gets in that is not true in engineering or in you know most other jobs and and creativity you don't have to be if you're a creative person you you don't have to get to advertising is really not that special in the, in the, world, in the creative world that you'd be better to take your ideas into engineering, where they could, where you could be inventive, and yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I'm doing a talk on Friday, all about creativity, mm-hmm. um, and one of the things I talk about is the muses, and the muses were supposed to be responsible for the arts, mm-hmm. literature, and science. Mm-hmm. And science these days isn't seen as something that's no, creative. No, no, no. And, and it, it is, it is. And this is the, yes, the, it is only um, in the last, I would say, 100 years, probably, I, as far as I know, that this sort of, we've, that the arts has had this great uh, exclusiveness uh, on creativity. You know, people in the arts are, you have to be in the arts to be creative. Not true at all, not true at all. It's uh, it's it's rubbish, and in fact, you'd be better off being a um, you know, a creative engineer and then and a creative than an advertising creative, because uh, it's it's not so oversubscribed. So, last question, Jeff. Yeah. If you were to look ten years down the line into a crystal ball, mm. is the advertising industry going to be like it the way it is now? Is is it going to be different? Where do you see more for everything? Is it's going to be. What has happened in, 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 in my time, the last 20 years, it's become much more fractured. You know, you've got these little, like, poke, you know, that do you know, uh, digital and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and um, it's going to get more and more fractured, I would say, and more and more specialised. Um, and there will be, it'll go two ways. I mean, there'll be the big multinational agencies and there will be Lots and lots of uh, below that, lot, much more fractured. You know, there'll be a dozen big multinational agencies, or less than a dozen, six maybe, big multinational agencies that are worldwide accounts and all that. And the rest will be much more fractured and clients buying much more ad hoc, much more brasserie style, I would say. Well, that's fantastic. Jeff, thank you so much indeed for your time. Thank you. Okay, thank you. (laughs) And at that point, I thought we were finished. But we weren't. Right, Jeff, there's there's one other thing. What's the one other thing? (laughs) The other thing is product (laughs) placement, which I hate. And the reason is this. If you were to go back over the past 30 years or so, um, 40 years, and you say, okay... If there had always been product placement, which product, which programs would have attracted it? Well, you'd never have had Hancock, you'd never have had Step to and Son, and you'd never have had The Office, because nobody wants their products associated with that bunch of losers. So what would you have had? Terry and June and my family. I rest my case. <laughs>
wish I knew what wine it was that Jeff gave me. I rather enjoyed it. And Jeff's conversation too, of course. I hope you're enjoying the series. Please drop me a line if you are. I'm just sitting here by myself, desperately hitting refresh in my mail program. So come back tomorrow for another podcast. Please, I promise you it'll be worth your while. Till then, adieu. The Future of Advertising podcast is brought to you by Additive, the marketing industry's most inspiring training company. Find out more about our talks, workshops and inspiration sessions at getadditive.com and get one third of your first booking by joining our mailing list. Shh.